This retreat revolves around the practical suggestion of every day making a holy hour. I trust it will not be difficult to convince you of its importance and value. It certainly was very difficult for our Lord to ever convince his first bishops about the Eucharist. Let us review two scenes. We do not often think of our blessed Lord talking about the Eucharist to the Gentiles, but he did. There are not many subjects on which our blessed Lord told the same to the Gentiles that he did to the Jews. Whenever we speak of the Eucharist and quote it, we always refer to chapter 6 of St. John. This was to the Jews. Now he's trying to convince them that there's something else besides human bread. So he tests them. Where are we to find bread to feed these? There are three answers. None of them said, but you're Lord. You just said you're the bread of life. If you're the bread of life, then you can give bread. Remember that he told, told Martha, I am the resurrection. She didn't believe in the resurrection of Lazarus. So when our blessed Lord said, where are we going to get bread? To see if they really believed in what he had said. First of all, the theologians answered. The theologians all send them away to the villages to find food. We can't bother with this social problem. Then there was the economist, Philip. Well, Philip quickly added it up on his computer. And he discovered that 300 pennyworth would not be enough to feed a crowd like that. Andrew, of course, always interested in public relations, hurries around the crowd to see if anybody has bread. He finds a boy who has some bread in a basket and some fishes. But he said, well, these are not enough. Our blessed Lord starts with what they have and begins the distribution of the bread to the people. Then he talks to them in detail about the Eucharist. I am the bread of life. And he also enunciates something that we do not often think about. It might be well to use it sometimes at a funeral. What is the assurance, for example, of immortality in a future life? It is the Eucharist. We need not always, for the faithful, go into a long rational explanation of the immortality of the soul. Our blessed Lord, in the 51st verse, says, I am that living bread which came down from heaven, and if anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. This is the assurance of immortality, our daily Eucharist. But not only living forever, even this world, and I give it for the life of the world. 
After this miracle of the loaves and fishes, immediately tremendous enthusiasm. They want to make him king. They'd already said he's a great prophet. Now they want to make him king. No one said anything about being a priest or a savior. They left that out. And our blessed Lord sees that his apostles are caught up in this wave of popularity. And he's afraid that they're going to be so much swayed by it that they will lose the truth that he has taught. And he said, get away from this place. Get in your boats. Cross the lake. We are not here for the sake of popularity. I am not a bread king that feeds gullets. So they depart to the other side of the lake. This was the Eucharist to the Jews. Now, little known or spoken about is his... And see what a difficult time he has to convince the disciples of the Eucharist. Uh, as a matter of fact, what happened when he announced the Eucharist to the Jews? Three things happened. First of all, he lost the masses because he refused to be a bread king and they left them and went into the mountains alone. Secondly, he lost disciples. The Eucharist causes a loss of disciples. And they said, this saying is hard. And they left and walked with him no more. He didn't say, oh, I'll change it a bit. Habiyant. And thirdly, he split his apostolic band, as we shall see tonight. It was seemingly a lost task to make them believe in the bread of life. Now comes the Eucharist. As regards the Gentiles. It is in Mark. And in the seventh chapter, verse 31, he crossed over to the territory of the ten towns, Decapolis. There were ten Gentile towns. Here he cures the deaf man and uses the word epipheta. They had no food. Same as in the Jewish situation. And he said to them, I feel sorry for these people. They've been with me nearly three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home unfed, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come a great distance. Now the disciples, who had already heard his long discourse on the plains of the lake, now said, well, how can anyone provide bread in this lonely place? He said, how many loaves have you? They said, seven. So we ordered the people to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, giving thanks, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples to distribute, and they served it out to the people. There were a few small fishes also, which he blessed and ordered them to distribute. They ate all to their heart's content. Same thing is said 
the miracle before the Jews. Now suppose our blessed Lord distributed one million bank notes that were worth in our currency $50,000. Do you think that any one of those would have said, Satis Domine, that's all I want. When he gives them bread, there was a limit. They had their fill. We can have our fill of the physical, but not the fill always, of tokens. And they all ate to their heart's content, and seven baskets were filled with the scraps left over. The people numbered about 4,000. There were 5,000 in the other group. And without delay, he dismissed them and went to the district of Talamuta. Now, while they're in the boat, the gospel says, they had forgotten to take bread with them. They had only one loaf in the boat. After this miracle of the multiplication of loaves and fishes, they get into the boat and the apostles say, and the Lord had multiplied the bread. Twice they had seen him multiply the bread and fishes. And they get in and they say, we don't have any bread. There's a tremendous amount of humor and insight into this verse. There was only one loaf in that boat that was Christ himself. And he began to warn them because they were asking for bread. Be on your guard against the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jews did not use leaven in their bread. So the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod was the leaven of a kingdom of God without the spiritual. So he warns them against it. And then they began speaking among themselves and they said, Does he say this because we have no bread? And knowing what was in their minds, he asked them. Now our Lord becomes angry. Why do you talk about having no bread? Have you no inkling yet? Do you still not understand? Are your minds closed? You have eyes. Can you not see? You have ears. Can you not hear? Have you forgotten? When I broke the five loaves among the five thousand, how many basketfuls of scraps did you pick up? Twelve, they said. And how many when I broke the seven loaves among the four thousand? They answered, seven. He said, still you do not understand? No. They did not understand. And then the night of the Last Supper, they come in and they quarrel for first seats at table. Our Lord then institutes the sacrament, passes it on to us and to the church. And he prepares, even after the resurrection, for us to understand a new kind of presence. Here he was trying to teach the apostles that beyond the bread there was bread. After he had come from the grave, notice four lessons that he teaches. First of all, to Mary Magdalene. She was not believing in the resurrection. She came with spices to anoint a dead body. 
You've seen the other women discover an empty tomb. They go and tell Peter and John. And what does Peter say? Ha! Ah, it's a woman's tale. You know how women are. Leaving everything. But our Lord only appeared to those who had some knowledge of him. The proof of the resurrection starts not with the empty tomb. It starts with the cross. And the angels always announced, you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. That's where we start. It is the crucified man who rises, not this man rise from the dead. Seed falling to the ground rises from the dead. Now our Lord appears in his risen form to Mary Magdalene. She thinks it's a gardener. There was one interesting sentence in John. In the place where they crucified him, there was a garden. Possibility of resurrection, new life in the springtime. She thinks it's a gardener. She tries, throws herself at his feet. She's always at his feet. She's at his feet in Simon's house. She's at his feet on the cross. In the resurrection, she's at his feet again. And she throws her arms about him. His feet in our blessed Lord says, Do not touch me yet. Yet. That is the important word. In other words, Mary, you think the only appearance and only presence that I'm going to have is physical? There's another presence. I've not yet ascended to my father. And after my ascension, you will discover another presence. Then you will touch me. And it will be far more intimate touch than the touch of flesh. See, I didn't know the Lord did not say that she was not to touch, but yet. For there would be another kind of touch later on which would be far more intimate, namely the possession of herself by Christ and Christ by herself. As in marriage, the peak of unity is the union of husband and wife and one flesh. So in communion is the soul and Christ in one ecstasy of love. Here is the first instance of a new kind of presence. That afternoon, our Lord appears to the disciples on the way to Emmaus. He speaks to them, reveals scripture, reveals the law of the priest victim, and they recognize him at the breaking of the bread, which is, all, which is always the Eucharist in scripture. And at the moment that they recognize him, he disappears. Once they have the certitude... This is Christ. Then the physical disappears. The third instance was on the week after the resurrection. The apostles are out in the boat fishing, seven of them. Our Lord is standing at the shore. There's a fire, and he has bread and fish. Where did the bread and fish come from? Here is the risen Christ. Is he still multiplying the bread and fish? St. Augustine says, Fishes ossus, Christus passus. He represented the passion of Christ. Now John is the first one to recognize him. And 
he comes, and then later on, all of the other apostles come. And when they do come, notice now what is said. In I do not find it immediately here, but the gospel tells us that they knew who it was, that it was the Lord, but they dared not ask him, for they knew. So in the presence of the Eucharistic Lord, we do not ask, we do not ask for reasons, we do not say, it is you Somehow or other, we know that it is the Lord. The fourth resurrection appearance, to confirm it, is Thomas that evening. And Thomas would not believe. Our blessed Lord then gave him the proof and said, Thomas, blessed are they who have not seen and who believe. The resurrection, therefore, is very closely united with a new kind of presence of Christ in his church. And what it demands is transparency. Is it any harder for us in this very hour to discover the presence of the Eucharistic Lord than it was for the apostles to discover divinity behind his humanity? They were not convinced. They went back fishing. It was only at Pentecost. And the Spirit came that they were ultimately convinced. And then through the flesh, though Peter at the moment when he received this light from heaven did confess Christ the Son of God. So it took a light to go behind the flesh. It takes a light to go behind the bread to discover the Eucharist. And probably an equal faith is required on the part of us in the post-resurrection church that was required by the apostles at the very moment when they were with him. The Eucharist then becomes for us a localization, a thou place. That's what it is. A very personal presence. For example, we have many who will say to us, Oh, well, the Eucharist is, the Lord is everywhere. Sure, but there are different kinds of presences. I was once giving a talk in an auditorium in St. Louis, and there were, oh, 10 or 12,000 people in the hall. And after the lecture, about 500 came up on the stage. And one man said, I have a daughter-in-law who refuses to come into the church, and she's had two courses of instruction. And I said, what is the trouble? And he says, I think it's the Eucharist. Is she here in the hall? Yes, she's there. Well, there was a park bench on the back of the stage. So this woman and I sat down on the back of the stage, and the 500 sat around to listen to the conversation. I said, I understand you do not believe in the Eucharist. She said, no. And I said, you know what it means, don't you? The presence of Christ. Yes. I said, are you married? She said, yes. Where's your husband? Korea. 
Does he write to you? Yes, three times a week. You have a picture of him? Yes, many about the house. You have any children? Yes. Do they look like him? Yes. Do his parents come to visit you? Yes, once or twice a week. I said, my dear lady, what more do you want? Well, she said, I want my husband. Oh, I said, you want a presence. And the Holy Spirit illumined her mind at that moment. And she saw the truth. We become used to the Eucharist. As husbands become used to beautiful wives. And they begin to take them for granted. Love has to be earned. And earned from day to day. As husbands can pay little attention to a wife. So we can pay little attention to the Lord. And one of the purposes of the Eucharist, you see, is to supply digestion after a sacrifice. We consume the body and blood of Christ. But is there not a spiritual digestion that takes place in his presence? Is marriage only the union of husband and wife in the marriage act? Is the Eucharist only just simply communion with Christ in the Mass? Or in marriage, is there not also a companionship of love? A communication of words and thoughts and affections? Shall not there also be in the church this presence of Christ? He is everywhere, yes, but there are localizations of presence. And see how, uh, for instance, Solomon brings forth this fact when he announced and rather when he dedicated his great temple. He begins by professing the universality of God's presence. And he says, but will God dwell indeed with man on earth? Behold, heaven and earth cannot contain thee. How much less the house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, hearkening to the prayer and cry which thy servant prays before thee, that thy eyes may be open day and night toward this house, the place where thou hast promised to set thy name, that thou mayest hearken to the prayer which thy servant offers toward this place, this place, and hearken thou to the supplications of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they pray toward this place, Yet hear thou from heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. The universality of God does not destroy the localization of his presence. And how often unbelievers become converted simply by the 
presence of the Eucharistic Lord. Some non-Catholics will come into a church and they will say, oh, it's different. I remember once I went down from Louvain to Paris to preach. And I was in a little hotel near the Opera Comique and there was an Englishman playing the piano and playing it well. And I congratulated him and then I suggested that we go to dinner and he said, but I've never eaten with a priest or met a priest before in my life. I suggested that if we were just like anyone else, stick a priest with a pin, he jumps too. So we went to dinner and then he presented to me a moral problem. He said, I have never met in my life one good man or one good woman. That gave me an occasion to thank him for the compliment. Then he went on and to tell me, he said, I, I picked up a woman in this restaurant a year ago this coming 11th of February. She was trying to break a lump of sugar in a cup of coffee, wasn't able to do it. So I broke it. She said her husband was mean to her. I said, all right, come and live with me. Well, I get tired of them all after 12 months. Her time is up, so I packed up her all of her clothes and left them with the concierge. She anticipated my move and she gave me this letter. Dear puppy, unless you refuse to continue living with me until our anniversary, I shall commit suicide. Now, may I prevent suicide by permitting her to live with me? And I said, no, one, she will not commit suicide, and two, you may not do evil, the good may come from it. Got to be near midnight. She said, I will take you home. No, I said, I'm going to Montmartre. There's a basilica of the Sacred Heart there where every single night there are a thousand men spending their lives, their hours in prayer. They have wives, they're good wives. They have children, they're good children. Come with me. He was a diamond merchant. Reluctantly he came. He said, what will I do? Will I kneel? Will I sit? How long will I have to stay? He had no faith whatever. And I said, I will leave when you want to leave, but I intend to stay all night. I read Mass the next morning when the sun came up over Paris. He stayed. And then on the way down, he said, will you stay in Paris and teach me to be good? This single night, which was so different from the other nights of his life, was enough to convince him that there is goodness in the world. And there are good people. The Eucharist is a kind of a radioactive thing. It shoots out rays. And if our, all of our sermons were prepared here, talking to the Lord, if all our problems were brought here, how much better would be our solutions? One of the great regrets at the end of our life will be that he was so near, he was so far away. And it's the test of faith. I have a three-room apartment. I have a bedroom. I have what would have been a bedroom in the apartment, which I converted into a chapel with a real presence. And I have a living room and a tiny, tiny little kitchen 
where I try to do my own cooking, God help me, it's awful. So that I must pass a hundred times a day the Eucharistic presence. I prepare all of my sermons there. Begin saying, Dear Lord, what do you want me to talk about today? Give me an idea. Shall I say this? Shall I say that? The inspiration comes. I'll answer this difficulty. I'll answer that. You will be surprised what a tremendous transformation it will make in your life. So the Lord found it hard to convince us bishops at the beginning. They didn't understand. That will perhaps always be the mystery of the church. That we have never quite grasped that presence that continues in a different way. And you will thank me at the end of your life for this daily holy hour. But I do not want the thanks. I just want to see more and more brought before the Eucharistic Lord. For he is our Christ, he is our Savior, he is our Redeemer, he is our love. And we have to be in love. And we can love only a person. That love we fall just short of in all love is the Christ who is Emmanuel. Well, this is the first conference that I will have given with sound effects. Can you hear me in the gallery? In the first conference, I suggested that there were two extremes in the church. Now remember, they are extremes. One extreme we called the neurotic, that were interested in the real but not in the ideal. And the others were the psychotics, who were interested in the ideal and not the real. I'm going to develop those two ideas today. Because, first of all, there is a great concern about what is called activism. Though no one ever speaks of pacifism. And if there is one, there could conceivably be the other. First of all, activism. There are a number of secondary and tertiary authors who develop these themes. Ultimately, however, the activist principle, which leaves out the spiritual to a great extent, or would consider it solely for the individual, they derive their inspiration from Marx. I do not blame the heavens for protesting at the mention of that name. So let me tell you something about the philosophy of Marx. 
Because so many fall into this extreme without really knowing the inspiration of it all. So we'll skip the secondary authors and just get to the roots. Marx, first of all, as you know, was a Jew, but he was baptized a Christian. And he became a Satanist. That is not generally known. But at the age of 19, he wrote a little treatise on Satanism, which the communists had very much tried to make us forget. The first basic principle, because he has two, the first basic principle of activism is man is alienated from himself, from his real nature, in two ways. First of all, by private property. Secondly, by religion. Man's nature is destroyed by private property because he is subject to an employer. And he has no rights of his own. He is alienated from his true nature because he's subject to God by religion. Now, says Marx, if you are ever to restore man to his true dignity, you must do away with private property and you must do away with religion. You see, the two of them are tied up together. It is wrong to say that the socialism as Marx is indifferent to religion. It is not. Once you understand these two principles. Now, the second principle of Marx was that the individual amounts to nothing. It is only the party, the group, the community that matters. That is why you will have in Article 123 and 124 of the Soviet Constitution these principles. Freedom of press, freedom of assembly, freedom of speech, are recognized for all Soviet citizens, provided they support the Soviet system. Well, suppose you do not want to support the Soviet system. Then you lose your individual liberty, because it is only the opinion of the party that matters. Article 124 there was recognized for all Soviet citizens freedom of religious worship and freedom of anti-religious propaganda. You can worship if you can find a church, but you dare not preach. You dare not publish. You dare not gather children to teach them because that's propaganda and the right of anti-propaganda belongs to the state. It's taken a long time for Marxism to get out of Russia and really to get into the church. But it finally has. And anyone who's made a study of it can see it. 
It appears, for example, in the statement that, well, society alone matters, personal sins are of no consequence. Now that is the basic principle of activism. We will come back to it later on. If we have many who do not want, for example, to do pastoral work, who feel that the reason they were ordained was be to become socially engaged, if we have many who are on that extreme or in that extreme, we also have others who are at another extreme. And there may be more on the other side. They are the ones who are concerned with individual piety, with liturgy, to the exclusion almost of any kind of social interest. The pastor would not visit, for example, his people, would not be concerned with those who are not practicing their faith, or with the sick. These will sometimes use liturgy as an excuse. Well, they're celebrating their Mass, they're conducting church services, but they are not doing very much for souls. As a matter of fact, sometimes it might be well. I have known some pastors in the States who I believe should have been buried upside down give their other end a rest. And apropos of this passism, listen, listen to the rain. The prophet Amos in chapter 5 Verse 21, I, this is God speaking, I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me burnt offerings and cereal offerings, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs, the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters. What a magnificent text. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See how the Lord is condemning those who are just simply staying in the temple? and not busy with the people? And again, Isaiah. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring me no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. 
They have become a burden to me. I will not listen. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Defend the fatherless and plead for the widow. So we have in the church two extremes. Superactivity and superinactivity. They're both wrong. How are we ever to strike a, a mean? Well, I think first of all, by taking a lesson from the Mount of the Transfiguration. When our blessed Lord took the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, to the Mount of Transfiguration, he revealed his nature as it will be in glory. Incidentally, I wonder if this was not the real way that the human nature of our Lord would have appeared. You just cannot put an electric light inside of an alabaster vase. If it's cheap, it's a vase. If it's expensive, it's a vase. You cannot put an electric light inside of an alabaster vase without that vase glowing. You cannot put divinity inside of a human nature without that human nature glowing. I think that our blessed Lord, in a certain sense, had to repress the incandescence, the radiation of a divinity in the human nature. Now the Heavenly Father speaks to him and sends him on the way to Jerusalem. When Peter, James, and John see the Lord with his face shining like the sun and his garments white as snow, Peter said, Lord, it's wonderful to be here. Let's have a solemn assembly. Let's build tents. One for thee and one for Moses and one for Elijah. This is religion. This glory. Here we are alone on the mount. Let's stay here. And what does the gospel say? Peter did not know what he was saying. Peter represented, and the other disciples for the moment, those who believe in a kind of a spiritual isolation. And our blessed Lord now, after the transfiguration, takes them down from that mountain and takes them down to a valley. And down in that valley is a distraught father. with a demonic child, and around the father and the child was the church, nine apostles, nine. Now these men were the activists, as it were. They were concerned with the poor. They were concerned with disease. They were concerned with the mental harassment of the father. 
And when our blessed Lord appeared, the Father went up to the to our Lord and said, Will you drive the devil out of my son? And our Lord drove out the devil. And the apostles round about, who were so very busy, trying to get rid of the demonic, trying to heal, they finally said to our Lord, Why couldn't we drive him out? Our Lord said, Because you have no faith. That's what's wrong with you. No faith. And all your activism and all your attempting to drive out this disease will be ineffectual. So in the Mount of the Transfiguration, there is the ecstasy and down below the action. This is the way to combine the two. The ecstasy, the union with Christ, prayer, and then down to the valley with activity. So the reconciliation of the two extremes is before we are active we have to be profoundly spiritual. Otherwise the activity is busybodyism. Listen, I know. I went into a place where there were 40,000 almost homeless people. Terrible poverty. Something had to be done for them. So I went to the government and I said, I will give you a church, I will give you a school, I'll give you a rectory, I'll give you a convent, I'll give you land, I'll give you everything if you'd only start housing for these people. Establish a beachhead here. Build houses and then run through the rest of these hovels. Received all the due permissions from Rome, the apostolic delegates and everywhere else. Announced it. And to protest. Some went out to the one of the non-Catholic schools and got girls in cars and protested that we were giving away a parish. As a matter of fact, there weren't over 30 people attending it on Sunday. And then there began a general protest against this kind of aid from the part of activists. So when I withdrew the offer, then because this was a moment when everybody was interested in the inner city, you have no idea the wave that swept of America about ten years ago. No priest wanted to be in a parish. They had to be down with the blacks. They had to be down with the chicanos. They had to be down with the poor. They couldn't be staying in rectories. The office was flooded with them. We've got to go down into these places. So we sent them down. Today, 
You can't find one who will go. The mood was over. Oh, they would quote this man, quote that man. And now the church stands deserted. City now wouldn't even take it. And how many of those in that kind of work have left the priesthood and the sisterhood? I said to one sister, how long has it been since you really prayed? She said about six months. So the balance is profound spirituality before there is any kind of activism. Too often, an intense passion for social action, social justice, is covered up by a want of individual justice, and particularly individual justice to God. Look at, for example, David. David is one day walking on his roof. He looks over across the street, and there on a penthouse is Bathsheba. He invites her over to see his etchings. So Bathsheba comes over, and she's with child. She's got a husband. Brings the husband back and said, we'll give you a furlough. The husband said, we're not allowed furloughs in the Jewish army. We're not allowed to stay with a wife when we're fighting. Well, David then got him drunk, and he slept in front of David's door all night. He wanted to send, send Uriah back again to Bathsheba to blame paternity onto the husband. Then he got in touch with the general, and he said, oh, some men have to be in the front line of battle. Send him in the front line. Maybe he'll be killed. And he was killed. And David then married Bathsheba. He had no remorse about it. And one day, the prophet came to him, Nathan, and he said, I have a social problem for you. Here's a very poor man who had one ewe lamb. There was a rich man next door who was giving a party. And he came and took, though he had a big flock, he came and took the ewe lamb of that poor man, and he served a meal to his friends. What do you want to do about it, David? David said, that man shall restore fourfold and shall give up his life. And the prophet said, you're the man. You! You stole the ewe lamb of Uriah. This is your story. You see this passionate love of social justice? Ready to kill a man now. Make him restore fourfold. But his own soul was not clean with God. Believe me, I don't believe there's any kind of work that we can undertake that requires greater spirituality than serving the poor. And we've got a model, too. And the model is Mother Teresa of India. Here this woman leaves her native country of Albania for India. She decides not to help the poor, but the distressed, the destitute. She has 50 houses now throughout the world. 600 novices. They lead a life of rigorous discipline 
One day a week, total silence. You do not go up to anyone. You've got to make your soul so that you will see God in people. Incidentally, that is one of the great things the Holy Hour does. Believe me, when we spend an hour every day in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament and begin to see the divinity of Christ behind the species of bread, we are better prepared to see God in the poor and the suffering and those who have denied civil rights. Then we get the vision. That's why she is able to help. Just her presence transforms. She has a house in New York, which I have visited many times, and she came to New York when they moved to a new place and was absolutely destitute in Harlem and a dirty street, garbage and filth thrown onto the street. This little 90-year-old Mother Teresa gets a broom and begins sweeping the street. The very people who had thrown the garbage out on the street got their brooms and came down. The inspiration of a holy woman. So, let us have activists. But let them be men of intense prayer and concerned with the salvation of individual souls. The only reality there is in the world is a soul. Society is not an entity except in the mind. Society is made up of persons. And when we begin dealing with a person, then we're really beginning to work with the poor. The editor of the Communist Daily Worker in New York, Louis Boudens, had written a series of articles against me and I invited him to dinner. And he said, what we communists have against you is that you do not believe that communism is a democracy. When I said, how can it be a democracy, inasmuch as you never mention a right until you get to Article 118? And I said, I don't want to talk communism. I want to talk about your soul. And I talked to him for an hour about his soul. It was eight months later that he got in touch with me. Then received him into the church, his wife, and the whole family. He had spent all of his life in spreading the social activism of communism, that the community alone matters. And then he finally came to see that maybe when my soul is straight with God, when I have individual justice, then I will have social justice then I can talk about it. Look at our Lord with Zacchaeus. When our Lord walked into Jericho, which was one of the most beautiful cities of, of our Lord's time, he saw this tiny little Jew, the leading banker of the city, whom everybody hated. 
And he tried to get up in front to see our Lord, and everybody would elbow him and only too anxious to do it. He had to swallow his pride. Climbs a tree. Did our Lord say, you dirty rich Jew? Look at all these poor people in Jericho. What are you doing about them? Our Lord handled the problem. He converted Zacchaeus. Now, this is a very difficult subject to talk about. Oh, you say, oh, well, Sheen isn't really interested in the, in the problems of the poor and the great social problems of our day. Well, I'll dismiss that with one line. I made and I received ten million dollars on television. Ten million, and I never kept a set. Period. But I'm trying to establish a balance. I am just as much against pastors and my own brethren who stay too close to a house and to a desk and forget the people as I am against these men who shout and shriek and have forgotten to some extent their individual justice to God and their prayers. The word that has been popularized, and we always have to be careful of popular words. It's well not to use them because they're not going to last long. Nobody in America uses the word involvement today. And there wasn't a priest in America who didn't use it ten years ago. Somewhere, how or other involvement disappeared. Now the in word is liberation. So let us do some frank talking about liberation. And the principle is simple. Every one of us, every priest, every member of the church must be in favor of economic and political liberation of those that are enslaved. But. That priest, that nun, that bishop is not to consider himself as liberated. He is to consider himself as a slave. So, economic, political liberation with personal enslavement. Now let me give you the proof. We can make no mistake by going to Scripture. St. Paul, because of the Romans had conquered many people, had often seen the slave market. 
And so St. Paul writes, you do not belong to yourselves. You were bought at a price. What was the price? St. Peter tells us you were bought not with gold and silver, but by the precious blood of the Lamb. The word doulos, slave, is used of our blessed Lord in the New Testament 47 times. Was our Lord liberated? He was a doulos. He emptied himself, made himself a zero, and became a doulos. We are actually slaves. And then and then only may we talk about liberation. Now comes this beautiful text of Paul in Second Corinthians and the translation of it. Here is very good. St. Paul is here describing a procession that perhaps is seen only once in a lifetime. It was what the Romans called a triumphal procession. In order that anyone would receive a triumphal procession, certain conditions had to be fulfilled. One, at least 5,000 of the enemy had to be killed in one battle. Two, vast territory had to be acquired for the Roman Empire. Thirdly, spoils had to be taken. If these conditions were fulfilled, then he would be brought in triumphal procession into Rome. In the procession there was first the lictors, then the members of the Senate, then after them the spoils. For example, after the, the conquest of Jerusalem, one of the spoils, as we know from the Ark of Titus, was the seven-branched candlesticks. Then came the slaves, all the prisoners. After them the priests, with their incense pots. And after them, the emperor. Now this is what is in St. Paul's mind. Thanks be to God who continually leads us about. Captives. In Christ's triumphal procession. Captives. In Christ's triumphal procession. And everywhere he uses us to reveal and spread abroad the fragrance and knowledge of himself. We are indeed on the way to salvation. Now he speaks of the incense and the perfume. That incense of the priests was sweet smelling to the Romans and to the general. But it was very foul smelling to the prisoners. And using that analogy, St. Paul says, 
we are indeed the incense offered by Christ to God, both for those who were on the way to salvation and for those who were on the way to perdition. To the latter, it is a deadly fume that kills, to the former a vital fragrance that brings life. Who is equal to such a calling? Liberation? Economic? Political? Yes. Personal? No. We are not liberated. We are Duloi. We are slaves in Christ's triumphant procession. And the more we're manacled with Christ, the greater will be the economic and liberation. But first we make our souls. We're holy, we're mortified. And then we can go out and not be like David who became excited about a social problem when he had an individual problem of his own.